0: As we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark, it has become increasingly clear that Jesus's coming was a massive event. He was not just another leader with fresh religious claims. He did not come with some good advice. He did not come to tinker around the fringes of humanity. Instead, Jesus's coming in the gospel of Mark is portrayed as a history-altering event. It's like the scales of this world were weighted on the side of brokenness and despair and darkness and sin, and that Jesus came and his coming tipped the scales back into balance. His wholeness The light he brings, the righteousness he imputes all push back on the way things were. Jesus came and balanced the scales. He changed the game. And the episode and the passage that we're going to look at today as a church will communicate this truth. But before we look at the whole passage, let's look at the setting in verse 18, if you'd read there in your Bibles. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, the episode begins with two groups. First of all, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees. And apparently both of these groups were in the middle of a fast now remember our last episode i know a lot has happened in our world in the last week but last sunday we were looking at the passage where jesus gathered in matthew's home and what were they doing he was feasting eating with tax collectors and sinners jesus was not fasting in other words but celebrating feasting with these people and since fasting is the event that launched this episode we should ask some questions What was fasting like in Israel at that time? Who fasted? Why did they fast? And how often did they fast? Well, as far as the Bible is concerned, in the Old Testament, there was only one mandated fast for the people of Israel. Each year on the Day of Atonement, for that one day, the whole nation would abstain from eating food. That's it. One fast each year. They were allowed to fast more often if they wanted to, but they were only required by Scripture to fast one day each year. The Bible does describe, however, additional times where the people of Israel, God's people, would fast in that Old Testament era. And usually it happened during a time of lamentation or a time of national emergency. So when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple or when Ezra implored the people to repent of their sin, or when there was war or a plague or drought in the nation, they would fast and seek the Lord. Additionally, individuals, not the nation, but individual people would fast in response to personal tragedies, you know, things like death of a loved one or sickness or other personal trials. But, but the Pharisees had developed fasting into a religious practice, for them, fasting was not a response to the pains of life, but a ritual. And they turned fasting into something that they were required to do every Monday and every Thursday of every week. And apparently, according to Jesus, when they fasted on Monday and Thursday, they'd come to the place where they drew a lot of attention to themselves in the process. Jesus said in Matthew six sixteen, And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The reward that they got for their fasting was that other people could see them and think, wow, how spiritual are you? But we learn here in this passage that not only were the Pharisees fasting, but the disciples of John were also fasting. Now, John's whole preaching ministry was designed to prepare the way of the Messiah Christ. And John, as a messenger, at this point of the story, was in prison. So it's possible that his disciples were fasting uh, for their leader, who was in prison, and they're sad for him, and they want to see God release him. But it's also possible that they were continuing to fast because they wanted to see Jesus come. They wanted to see the revealing of the Messiah, the revealing of the Christ. Now as both of these groups fasted, and as Jesus and his group did not fast, it says there in verse 18 that they asked, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I I want you to catch this. It's almost comical. Here's Jesus, the creator of the universe. He has arrived in human flesh. The Christ Savior is here. And here's their big question. Why don't you fast? That's what they want to know of all the things that they could have asked. Now, this might have been a sincere question, and it might have been an accusation disguised as a question. Either way... Why didn't Jesus and his disciples take up the tradition of biweekly fasting? That was the question that's being asked. Well, let's look at Jesus' response in verse 19. It says, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So Jesus immediately starts talking about uh, this scene, a a wedding, a bridegroom, and the friends of the bridegroom, or the guests of the wedding party. Christina and I, we got married on January 12, 2002, and it was such a blast, our whole wedding. We actually got married right here in this church sanctuary, and then afterwards, We lived in total luxury and we rented out the Monterey Elks Lodge and went and had just an incredible time. I was a youth pastor and a college pastor at the time, so the whole dance floor was filled with teenagers and young adults. We were only 23 at the time, so all of our friends were on the younger side. And so it was just a wild scene. And we did all the cliche, typical stuff. You know, we tossed the garter belt and the uh, bouquet of flowers. We smashed cake into each other's faces. We you know, danced. We did the electric slide. We even, we even had told our DJ that our one major request, our, our one prohibition was that he was not allowed to do the chicken dance. But I tell you what, the energy of that wedding just caught a hold of this guy, and he could not refrain. And pretty soon, we're doing the chicken dance. It was a wild scene. It was a wild scene. But, but here's the thing. As celebratory as our modern weddings sometimes are, they cannot hold a candle to the feasting that ancient Israel partook in whenever a bride and a groom, tied the knot for seven days the whole village would ball out the newly married couple was treated like royalty for a whole week like king and queen and the friends and guests had no responsibility for that whole week except to enjoy the festivities and the whole thing started whenever during a set window of time the groom decided to show up, whether in the morning or in the middle of the night, and the trumpet would blast and the party would begin. So when Jesus gave his answer here, they were all well aware of the monumental joy of weddings in that culture. Jesus said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. You see, they knew that wedding guests or friends of the groom would never fast as long as the wedding celebration was happening. In fact, notice how Jesus says it there at the end of verse 19. He says they could not fast because, and the reason he said it that way is because the religious authorities had actually outlawed fasting during a time of a wedding. Apparently, there were some people in Israel who felt so religious that they would actually fast during a wedding. So they had to make a rule about it. No fasting during a wedding. So what is Jesus saying here? Why does he give this picture in response to the question, why do you and your disciples not fast? What's he saying? Well, he's saying, first of all, that he is like the bridegroom and his disciples are like the wedding guests. The bridegroom has arrived. He's come. He's present, and the only proper response for his guests or disciples was feasting, not fasting. It was incumbent upon the disciples that they rejoice because they had Jesus. He was right there in their presence. Now, interestingly enough, this imagery here of Jesus the Christ as a bridegroom, is not used in the Old Testament. In other words, in the Old Testament, the Christ figure is never spoken of as a coming bridegroom. He's not foreshadowed as a groom preparing for a wedding. But do you know who is spoken of as a bridegroom all throughout the pages of the Old Testament? God himself. There in the Old Testament, God appears as a loving husband for his people. He's just one of, Here's just one of many Old Testament examples from Isaiah 54, verse 5 and 6. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. All through the Old Testament, this is the image, that God is a husband to his people. But in the New Testament, the imagery shifts. Jesus, the Christ Messiah Savior, he becomes the groom. This is indicative of his true nature. He is God in the flesh. In places like Matthew 22 and 25, John 3, Ephesians 5, Revelation 19 and 20, Jesus is portrayed as the bridegroom. Paul said it like this, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you like a pure bride to one husband, to Christ. So the idea of the wedding imagery that Jesus used is simple. It's all about Jesus. God is here. He came. And the disciples would be foolish to do anything other than celebrate his presence. Okay, so this leads me to our first main point for today's teaching. Number one, Jesus is our cause for joy jesus is our cause for joy you see in times like ours it's important to remember that we as believers having jesus we have the root cause for all true joy we have christ he has come we can have a personal relationship with god Because the Son of God made a way for us to connect to our Father in heaven. And the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us and quicken us. His indwelling presence in us is our true source of joy, like rivers of living water. He comes out of us and operates within us. And I want you to remember this, Calvary. In times of chaos, when the world feels as if it's lost its mind and is unraveling, And when toilet paper cannot be found at Costco, we have the true source of joy. We have Jesus. In one sense, I think we need to receive Jesus' permission to have joy. You see, it's tempting to become beleaguered and depressed, overwhelmed and stressed, but we have Jesus. And because we have Him, we have a reason at all times. For gladness and joy like wedding guests in the middle of the celebration we get to party and celebrate because jesus has come and we know him please don't lose this church don't lose this king jesus has come king jesus reigns supreme and king jesus will come again though pestilence looms jesus will come Even if, God forbid, death takes us, Jesus will resurrect us. You see, if we worship at the altar of money, or the altar of health, or at the altar of a sense of control over our environment, our joy will only be temporary at best. But if we worship and honor the true God, if we rejoice over Jesus, we can have joy that lasts The bridegroom has come. He is ours. And look, this is not a delusional way of thinking. It's not a denial of reality. You know, I'm not suggesting that we walk around with fake plastic smiles, attempting to convince ourselves that everything is okay. No, what this is, is instead a full embrace, total acceptance of the truest reality that ever was when our world melts away we'll discover that Jesus' kingdom is the one which will never end and I want to walk in this reality during this age and especially during this unique season I want to live in joy because I have Jesus there's 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 much to mourn In This world and Jesus did mourn and encouraged us to do the same in places like Matthew 5 verse 4 and we'll talk about that in a moment But though we mourn the world's brokenness We have joy because Jesus came to heal that brokenness I want to gather together with my brothers and sisters in Christ with friends Of the bridegroom according to CDC guidelines, of course as we gather And I want to celebrate Jesus. I want to rejoice over Jesus So before we move on in the passage, let me offer you some suggestions on how to cultivate this Jesus joy that I'm talking about. Number one, read about Jesus. His life is so refreshing, and to recall it in the pages of Scripture is good medicine for your soul. Number two, talk with Jesus. Spending time walking and talking with your Lord will help you recapture the joy of your Lord. Number three, obey Jesus. Nothing saps your joy like disobedience. In the darkness, we struggle for joy, but there is gladness when walking in Jesus's light. And lastly, number four, remember Jesus's kingdom. When life is chaotic, we must recall the ultimate destiny of all of God's children. Okay, but Jesus had more to say in answer to this question about fasting, so let's continue into verse 2. Twenty, If you'd look at your Bibles, it says the day will come, Jesus said, when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Here, Jesus introduced a sudden event into his wedding illustration. All of a sudden, in the middle of the ceremony, the bridegroom is taken away from the wedding guests. There, there was no parallel of this in the ancient Israelite weddings. This was an odd thing to the people who heard Jesus say this. And his word choice indicates the violent removal of the bridegroom. He doesn't just decide to leave on his own, but he is snatched away. He is taken away violently from his people, from his guests, from his bride. You see, one day, Jesus, with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, would be violently ripped away from his people. And after a series of illegal trials, he would be crucified at the will of an angry mob. It would be sudden. It would be violent. Jesus would be taken away from the bridal party. And Jesus said that his disciples in that day would fast. In other words, the trauma of that moment for the disciples would keep them from eating. Feasting would be replaced with fasting. Now, this isn't really a passage right now or a message right now about uh, fasting, but let me say a word about the practice. Some think it's unnecessary because we have Jesus. Uh, But in other places, Jesus did give directions for fasting. So I think it's a spiritual discipline that we're allowed to enter into if we feel so inclined, you can read about it in places like Matthew chapter six, verse six, 16 to 18. And if you'd like to explore the practice of fasting, uh, I'll link an article that I wrote a few years ago in my sermon notes online called Fasting for Beginners. And in all the years I've had that article out, I've never had someone come to me and say, could you write an article called Fasting for advanced fasters i don't know anybody who's gotten there yet so if you're a beginner go ahead and read that article here though jesus doesn't give a teaching about fasting that's not the point of this passage instead what he's declaring is that when the emergency of the cross occurred his disciples would fast his death would precipitate their fasting okay this leads me to my second point today it's a very brief one number two sin is our cause for sorrow sin is our cause for sorrow you see as much as we have joy in jesus his cross also shows us where to place our sorrow w- what do i mean well let me ask it like this why did jesus die why was he violently taken to be crucified what was the ultimate cause of those terrible events the answer of course is our sin all of the tragedy pain and rebellion of mankind propelled jesus to the cross there the bible says he would become sin for us and die in our place so that we might become the righteousness of god and this departure this cross this separation caused the disciples deep sorrow perhaps it's a lesson for us today what should cause us to sorrow Should it not be the vestiges of sin all around and within us? Should it not be the very things that drove Jesus to the cross in the first place? Should it not be everything that is rooted in evil and sin? This this includes, of course, the virus that our world is fighting right now. This is one of the effects of the fall, fallout from the original sin. Our world is broken. Praise God that Jesus came to rescue and resurrect our world so let's trust and believe him uh, during a time like this but after making his point through the imagery of the wedding jesus used two more illustrations to make one more massive point so let's read verse 21 and 22 as we wrap up our time together it says in verse 21 no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment if he does The patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, now remember this setting. You have the disciples of John and the Pharisees wondering why Jesus didn't fast. They question Jesus' practices. You know, why aren't you doing what we do? These are well established traditions and rhythms and routines. Why aren't you engaging in them? Who are you to buck the system? Do you think that you, Jesus, are better than us? Now, Jesus uses two images to demonstrate the outmoded religious ways that they practiced. They were like old garments. They were like old wineskins. In the first illustration, Jesus said there in verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Okay, we all understand this first image. Uh, If you patch an old garment with new material, the unshrunk material will eventually shrink with washing, and it will create a tear That is worse on the old garment. But second, Jesus gave another illustration. He said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now this illustration is more difficult for us modern uh, readers to understand. Here's what we need to know. In those days, they stored wine in wineskins. Not in glass bottles or barrels like we do today. These wineskins were often made with the skin of a goat. All the holes of the wine uh, of that goat skin would be tied off, and the empty goat skin would then be filled with wine. And unfermented wine needed a fresh goat skin. During fermentation, the wine would expand and the wineskin needed to expand with it. In other words, if it was an old, rigid, already stretched out wineskin, the new wine would burst it once the fermentation process occurred. Wine and wineskin would both be destroyed. Okay, so what is Jesus saying with these two illustrations or these two images? Well, remember, he's talking about The religion of that day. They wanted Jesus to adopt their practices. Jesus is letting them know, I'm not an old patch. I'm not old wine. I'm a new cloth and a a new wine. I cannot be added to you. I came to fulfill and replace you. Now, at Calvary last spring, we actually studied through the book of Hebrews. And you could say, in one sense, that the book of Hebrews is an exposition of these two images from Jesus. Jesus did not come as an add on to Judaism, the book of Hebrews tells us, but the fulfillment of and replacement of it. What this speaks of is the unmixable nature of the gospel. You see, it does not mix with Judaism. It does not mix with any other religion. And in an age where diversity of belief is championed, it's good to remember the exclusive claims of Christ. He doesn't mix with anything else. He came to bring something incredibly and fundamentally new. Ezekiel the prophet talked about this in the Old Testament when he said things like, and I will give to you a new heart. God speaking, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what Jesus came to do. Okay, this brings me to my last and final point. Number three, Jesus is not an add-on. Jesus is not an add-on. Never. You know, no way. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews that our God is a consuming fire. That's Jesus. He wants to consume you. He wants every part of you. He's not here to be added to your philosophies and religions and rhythms. No, he's a new wine looking for new wineskins. He is not to be added to our lives. Paul said it this way. He said in Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, as long as Paul was alive, he lived for Jesus. So much so that he could say, To live is Christ. This is a kind of life that we should strive for, a life that we should want to emulate. We should want this, but it's not a given. It's not automatic, but we should want and say and live like Paul. For us, to live is Christ. But the problem is that many believers. Are busy trying to merely add jesus to their lives i don't know if you've ever heard of pepper plant hot sauce but it's one of my favorites i like adding it to all different sorts of food and uh you know a, a meal to me is made better by a lot of times adding a little bit of pepper plant and all its different kinds of flavors but Like adding pepper plant to all kinds of food, people try to add Jesus, just add a little Jesus to my life, or my philosophies, or my way of doing things. So someone has a specific political aim, and they think they can add Jesus to their cause. Someone else is motivated in their lives almost entirely by greed, by money, and they think they can add Jesus to their pursuit of riches. Someone else wants to party and ignore basic biblical commandments, but they'll put on a necklace with Jesus' cross. Time and time again, people try to do money and sex and priorities and religion and family and feelings or anything else their way, but only add a little Jesus. And then they're shocked when they're depressed, disillusioned, or frustrated in the end. You see, life doesn't work when you only add Jesus to the way that you already do things. Instead, you must let Jesus take over completely. One of the things I'm going to miss the most uh, during this coronavirus lockdown that we're all experiencing is uh, I'm a a Formula One race car fan. And uh, the whole Formula One season has been delayed. And I love watching those cars, you know, they're like jet engines in a car racing around the track, you know, just going so fast. They're just so cool, you know, they're so loud, I just love them. And I've talked to you, church, about our sweet Honda Odyssey minivan that we have that was previously owned by a bunch of Catholic nuns. Uh, If you were to take an F1 engine and try to put it in our Honda Odyssey, it would just be unnatural. It wouldn't fit. It just doesn't make sense. That engine needs a completely different body, a completely different system to be able to handle it. This is how it is with Jesus. He's not meant to just be added to your life. Instead, he's meant to take over everything. He's the new cloth. He's the new wine. Give yourself to him. Surrender to him. Now, before I wrap this up entirely, I should mention that there's an interesting addition to this little passage that only Luke records in his gospel. After everything Jesus has already said, Luke's account reads this way. He says, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. Uh, For he says, the old is good. Now, now, no one's ever accused me of being a wine aficionado. I don't know a lot about it. But I have heard that old wine is often better, that it's good for it to age. And Jesus knew this. So he says, when people drink the old wine, they don't want the new wine. The old wine, they say, is better. Why does he say this? This is a warning, everyone. This is a warning for us. You see, human nature, the way we think about life, It's just like our taste in wine. We think the old is better. But here's the thing. When it comes to Jesus, the old wine isn't better. Or if I could say it like this, your old life is not better. I know some people who live this way. They live like their old life is better. Unfortunately, I know some people who are living life exactly like they did when they were in high school. It's an epidemic, I think, amongst my Gen X brothers and sisters. You know, 45-year-olds, reasoning and living and prioritizing, just like it's 1992 and that they still smell like teen spirit. The same jealousies, the same parties, the same thinking, the same social structure, the same way of life, just a more grown-up version. And many of them, what I've watched them do is just try merely to add a little bit of Jesus. But it can't be done. He can't be added. If he is, everything will be ruined. Instead, he must replace. You see, when it comes to Jesus, the old wine is not better. He needs you to give him, all of you, a fresh place for him to operate. Church, before I let you go today, let me conclude with a handful of applications. Number one, in reflection on all of this, spend time with Jesus. Many of you have had many calendar events eliminated from your life during this season. Take some time. Be with the Lord. Spend time with Jesus. Number two, receive Jesus' permission to celebrate him. You see, Jesus is telling us that we have him, and because we have him, we get to and have the ultimate reason to rejoice. And it would be tempting to think that we must be sorrowful. We must be somber. And, of course, there are very serious things that our world is dealing with, but our world is always dealing with very serious things. Thing. Sin has ravaged us completely, but we still have Jesus' permission to celebrate him because the bridegroom has come, and for us believers, he belongs to us. Number three, remind yourself and other believers that Jesus' kingdom never ends. You know, he came. Everything else in this world will perish and melt away, but Jesus' kingdom, which is now, will also never end. Or remind yourself of that, and remind your fellow brother and sister in Christ of that truth. Number four, determine if any of your sorrows should be replaced with mourning over sin and its insidious effects. What I mean is, so often as believers, we're not sorrowful about the effects of sin in our lives or in our world, but we're sorrowful about other things, our our concerns, our worries. We get wrapped up in so many things that Jesus just isn't worried about. So we have to determine if any of our sorrows must be replaced with true sorrows, true things that we should be mourning about, the brokenness of our world. And number five, ask God to show you areas of your life you've tried to only add Jesus, You know, I gave a list there during my teaching. You know, the way that we do money or parenting or, or the way that we do uh, sex or friendship or different things in life. Ask yourself, am I just doing these things my way or do I need to let Jesus come in and take over my operation? And finally, number six an application, wash your hands a lot. <laughs> Make sure you wash your hands a lot during this season. Use all the disinfectant you got. I just want to tell you, church, I love you. I love you so much, and I miss you. I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to hear the little kids running around the church campus again. I can't wait for us to be able to hug each other and and all of that. I can't wait for those days to come. This whole experience has made me consider and think about the words of the Apostle John at the end of 2 John. He said to them, though I have much to write to you, or Though I, as your pastor, have much to say to you. He said, I would rather not use paper and ink. And I would say, I would rather not use streaming video or audio. He said, instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. I can't wait for us to be able to face to face be together again, church. So I'm going to pray, but... In conclusion, make sure that you check us out online this week as we unroll our plans for the weeks to come as a church.